Welcome everybody. My name is Alexander Greb. I am the Customer Advisor Lead at S4HANA Strategy at SAP and you're listening to the SAP Experts Podcast. Today we continue on the track of our How to Build Crisis Resilience and Win in the Recovery series with a topic that is essential to excel in these. Process Excellence. I was lucky to welcome Hala Seine, Chief Product Officer of Celonis, the leading provider of process mining applications. We talk about the different aspects of resilience, what capabilities enterprises and individuals need to master crisis, recovery and the so-called new normal and how to achieve them. Before Celonis, Hala had a long and very successful track record as SVP and president of various LOBs at SAP and she is very candid in her insights. She will tell us how modern process mining approaches cannot only make you a winner in the recovery but also how it helps you to become the sustainable enterprise you want to be in the 21st century. And that if you are on your path of moving to S4HANA, you should consider doing that with the usage of process mining, if you want to do it right and boost up the benefits of your digitalization efforts. I learned a lot and you will be too on this insightful and entertaining episode of the SAP Experts Podcast. Welcome, Hala. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Hala, last time we talked, you were telling me that you used your free time during the lockdown period up to that point to polish your skills in math, like exponential questions by digging into the school books with your kids. <laughs> What additional superpowers did you gain since then? Oh, I've also been polishing my German. My really? kids all go to German public schools. I've never been to German public schools before. So you guys do math different than how I learned it. Tell me about that. Like long multiplications. You guys yeah. start left to right. Yeah. We all start right to left. But this is, where did you go to your well, school? I was, in, I was both in Jordan in school, but I was also mm -hmm. in mostly the American school system. So I was in Cyprus and Egypt in the US. And I can guarantee you, you guys are special. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet so but I was not aware that for example in, in the US they also start from the right side I that's how I learned it I was doing it all the time ah, so you, you just had your own style I get maybe that's it And I have no idea but anyways and you have to also teach the kids German that's very important and I never learned German formally I learned it literally off the streets mm. and in books just by reading but I never went to school so I have no idea so I'm learning a lot It's good, good hobby. Learn to be a teacher. And of course, you learn patience. And when you like try to teach a thing, this is one of the best methods to learn for yourself. Yes. And there, I was surprised at how many things we actually don't know. We know, but we don't know why. Yeah. You just right? take for granted. You just take for granted. Like, why is a negative mind multiplied by a negative, a positive? Yeah. Right. And how do you explain that without going into deeper into math? Because you have to actually know that before you go deeper into math. So I really got to appreciate teachers in this time period. And I do hope that schools will open one day soon, because I also think the kids need the social environment too. the, you know, I don't think they're needed to watch over the kids, but you definitely need the schools in order to help educate them, teach them the right way. Right. Not mama's maybe self-invented way of doing long multiplication. 
and, uh, you know, also explain it to them in the right way and make sure that they have the right social contact and the social skills. You feel that the kids really need it. And and I guess your kids, your kids are quite similar to mine. They love you, but they definitely, again, want to spend some time without you. Right. Did you just hear my kid in the background <laughs> telling me, zum Glück bin ich so schlau? Luckily, I'm really smart. That's what she just said. Probably she's right. Yes. So, yeah, we'll feel blessed. At least everybody's healthy. Definitely. Let's talk about some smart things. Um, in the last episodes of the SAP Experts podcast, we have talked a lot about business resilience, which is, of course, a key priority for SAP and its customers at the moment. But what are, from your perspective, the relevant capabilities that companies need today to be resilient? So I was really thinking about this resilience point, right? And one of the things that really strikes me is the actual raw definition of resilience. So if you look it up in the dictionary, resilience actually has two definitions. The first one is it's the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after a deformation caused especially by compressive stress which then indicates with this definition that you want to go back to the shape you were in before yeah. the change happened, right? Before the stress occurred. The second definition is an ability to recover from or adjust easily to, to misfortune or change, right? And so I think these two are very different because in the first definition, you're assuming that your initial form is the best form and all you're trying to do is go back to that form. In the second one, you're just trying to recover, right, into and maybe potentially a new form that makes you even better. And how fast you're able to recover is how resilient that you are. So I think when we speak about business resilience, I like to focus on that second definition. Right. That that's a fantastic point what you make because when we talk about one of the most used words now is a new normal. Yeah. yeah. Then I think you want to be anything like that what you have been before in this kind of new normal. Yeah, I I mean, I think a new well first of all what is normal? Right? Uh that's a whole other thing. But I don't know if you, if people, I don't know if people perceive it as a positive to have a new normal. Like, is the new normal better than the old normal? I think for, for most people, something new is always a little bit a, something frightening. Right. And I think it doesn't have to be. I think in a way it is really, um, you know, I think it's quite unfortunate that so many were touched by uh, the virus and, you know, and, and, and all of its ramifications. And even if people recovered, it was a very painful experience. Um, however, I think it is a crisis and crises happen all the time within business. And there's small bit crisis and there's big crisis. This is not our first big crisis. It is a crisis where a lot of crises all came together, right? So we have the financial crisis. At the same time, we had the viral crisis. Um, at the same time, you know, right now we're also facing a lot of the uprising and outrage against uh, discrimination, rightfully so. So we've had a lot of things happen at the same time. And there's so much um, stress that the system can actually take. 
But what has happened is because it's lasted over a longer period of time, I think it gave people the time, unlike other crises where people choose the first definition of resilience, which is let's jump back to how we were before as quickly as possible. And even if there is a new norm over time, we'll go back to our old habits and old norms because old habits are really hard to break. Right. And so now, because we've lasted for so long, it's actually given us the time to sit down and reflect and think of a new way of how do I want the new norm to look like. And I like to think that the new norm is going to take a lot of goodness. I can think of a lot of bad habits that I'd love to keep behind. Right. And I think the new norm can give us an opportunity to also um, critically think of how do we accept change and disorder in our lives. And one of the things that I've always believed in, because I worked quite intensively with a lot of supply chain leaders and supply chain is always trying to bring orders. And enterprise software is always trying to bring in standards and norms into the configuration of the system. And what I find is really interesting is if you look actually at the basic laws of physics, one of them is entropy. And entropy will always move forward. There will always be chaos. No matter what we do, no matter how much we want to create habits and norms and fight change, change will happen and chaos is a norm. So how do we build resilience by, instead of fighting this, how do we embrace it, right? And that's where you go into a whole other environment which then says, okay, maybe there is a different way. Maybe we can use the data that we have to be able to sense much better what is happening in our world, orient ourselves a lot faster, be able to create our optionalities and our decisions, and accept the fact that there is no one right way, like, but there are many right ways and that can vary based on the objective I want to reach. Like I'll give you a practical example. If I want to go from your house to my house, we probably live like what, 20 kilometers apart. About that. Yeah. So there must be maybe eight, 10 normal ways to go to you. Right. Plus, you can think of all the different calculations and all the possible side streets I can also take, right? And one can, we understand intrinsically that there is no right one way, depending on the weather condition, depending on the weather condition, depending on the traffic situation, right? Different ways will be better, right? To, ach to achieve the goal, if I want to go eco or if I want to get as fast as possible to your house. Our business systems don't do that right now. Our business system assume there is a norm. And so big part of what I'm trying to think of about when I um, talk about how to build resilience is how do you get the data? How do you get a system that can analyze and swift through all the data, all the optionality and calculate for you the likelihood of success given the actions you want to take, the next best action you want to take, given the business context and the environment that you're in. So there is nothing like something of a, a single input with the, which determines like a sim single existing output in what you say. There right. is an algorithm. 
concerning that? No, because it depends on the objective you want to achieve. So in business sense, if I want to focus on margin, then I better treat all the sales orders coming from my highly profitable customers with higher priority than all of my lower profitable customers. So if you take it mathematically, like very simple, I have one customer who I generate 10 million with, one order, but I have a 5% margin. Or I have two customers, I generate four and a half million each, right, nine million in total, but I have 50% margin. Which order do I do first, the big one or the two small ones? I'll do the big one first if I am having the objective of I want to go to the markets and I want to show a steep growth on my revenue. But I will take the other two and do those first and do the other one third or maybe potentially even push it out because I want, if I want to prove uh, operational stability and high operating income. right? And that completely depends on the business environment I was in. In February, all companies were taking the big one and doing that first because we were in a growth market, right? Very clear. Then now we're trying to prove operational stability and many would choose the second. And that changed like this, but it's not the first time that it changed like this. It's the first time that it changes and extends for yeah. such a long period of time, giving us more time to think that this is the kind of resilience we need. We need to let the data signal to us. We need to have clear understanding of our objectives. Let the objectives and the data be put into the proper end-to-end process, business context, impact, analyze it, and then let the data signal to us which actions we should take next. So in a way, the abilities or capabilities that we need now or that help companies, individuals, whoever, to cope better with the crisis are basically the same like they have been in probably 2008 when you had the financial crisis and 2001 when we had 9-11 and so on and so on. Would yes, you... we, we've always needed this ability. But I think a huge difference is in our thinking. So we always think standard is best. If everything could be simple, if everything could be standard, then life was good. So we spend a lot of time on you know, lean and agile and also a lot of methodologies, right? Analyzing how do I make everything as standard as possible? And you should make everything that is simple, input, output, as standard as possible. Otherwise, yeah, it's completely inefficient. That's right? how most processes work. You have something like 80% is standard and then you have the exceptions. That's what everybody's right. trying to put their processes into it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But now what we try to do is we try to treat the 80% investing all IT investment in handling the 80%. And then the 20% is actually overriding the system. Now, when you have a high stress situation like we have right now, what customers have been telling me over the past few weeks is our employees are working harder than ever from home because their job now is to override the system. You're no longer in the norm. Right. Normally, for example, the employee equipment catalog is open for every employee to order. Well, now all of a sudden, nobody wants anybody to order new equipment. So what do they do? They can't shut down the catalog because maybe somebody's computer really is broken. So they say, now go to your manager for a special approval 
and include the manager's email into the workflow so that procurement can release it. And then they tell procurement, which used to release most everything automatically, they've lowered the levels and now procurement has to release a lot more checking, right? Maybe somebody, you know, smart comes in and writes the bot for this and that costs you another bunch of money. So you're overriding the system as opposed to putting in place a system that simply accepts that now our priority has changed. So now imagine you could press a button and say only mission critical is approved, right? And you put in a workflow that says this is what it is and then it's done. You don't need all of that overriding. Is that in your opinion a conflict between something like process efficiency? What I normally, of course, thrive to what I want to achieve by making these kind of fixed process because what is repetitive is in a certain way or let's say in, in a classic way of thinking efficient in a certain way. Flexible or flexibility can be in some eyes be a conflict concerning that. Is there now, let's say, the possibilities to add or to like connect these kinds of thinking? I think efficiency is, uh, is very interesting because I, and you make a very valid point because efficiency has to do with, am I doing what I am doing as fast and as cost efficiently as possible, right? Yeah. Then you can get some form of incremental efficiency because all you're doing is automate what I'm doing and make what the human is doing a little bit faster because now a computer is doing it, correct? There's another, but this can only, you can only squeeze a lemon so far. The real squeezing or the real efficiency comes in when you question, should I even be doing that in the first place? Of course. And you can only really know that if you're looking at it from an end-to-end -end perspective, right? From an end-to-end -end process perspective. And now if you're looking at it from an end-to-end -end process perspective, you find that there is nobody there's always somebody in some company who says that they're the process owner, but there's no process operator that goes completely end to end, right? It's always broken down into different tasks. There's always bottlenecks, right? And in time of stress, like what we have right now, your bottleneck actually jumps. So maybe your bottleneck was at the beginning, your suppliers in Italy, but then your bottleneck switched to be their suppliers in Spain. Then it switched to be your suppliers in the US. Your bottleneck was bouncing around, right? So you have the situation of you need to look at it completely end to end. And you also know that companies, for example, when they grow or add resources, they'll add in one place, but not necessarily in the other place, causing a different bottleneck. So if one group is really, really good at being super, super efficient at what they do, right? But then another group, not so much, then you still, overall, your experience is broken. So how do you make sure that you're always looking with two lenses, not one, because we always like to think in you know, one dimensions. It's not a one-dimensional problem. You have to look at the tasks of the individual. What do they have to do in the perception of also What part of the bigger system are they impacting? And then what you would have considered to be an efficiency program of let's get them to you know, automate the send to supplier request button, right? Um, again, instead you say, 
I never needed that material in the first place. And then you get exponential levels of, efficient, of efficiency and effectiveness of your overall process. So I'd say focus on effectiveness first. Once you're doing the right things, then make sure you do them right. So but if we myopically look at doing the right, doing the things right, then we may be doing the wrong things right. So, so we come now to the point, of course, when the discussion is a bit about the cause and effect issue. Yeah, when, when I always like looking to optimize processes in a way that my simple KPIs can see, then I will always try to what you say, like I, I squeeze the lemon yeah, till there is nothing in anymore. And um, I look at my KPIs to, to go a bit better and better going to the root cause of the issue or of, of the process is like you said, something completely different. How could I, from the point of a customer who said, okay, we have to do things differently after like the crisis and so on. We, we have learned that going that way that we did was not up to date anymore. How can he approach the topic, in your opinion, best by going into these kind of process flexibility and so on? Right. I, I think, um, first of all, I would encourage everyone who works with um, data or with, with any form of enterprise system to take that data and look at it within the process view, right? This was my conviction. This is why after 19 years at SCP, I decided to switch, right, to come and exactly focus on that. Because I think once you put the data into the process context, it becomes a very um, different view, right? And there's a difference between objective and KPIs. So key performance indicators are only there to indicate, are you achieving your objective? So you focus on the objective, eye on the prize. And then you have all of your KPIs in order to tell you, are you there? Are you not there? Right. And you have to know that KPIs are even moving based on time and where you are. So I give you like a mother a supply chain example is you're basically always dealing with averages. What, mm -hmm. what we used to call it SAP master data. We plan according to master data. So we plan according to averages or medians, right? Now, average or median normally happens somewhere around 50%. So if you're planning on an average lead time of five days, then most likely you're landing somewhere with 50%. You might as well flip a coin. Yeah. So, but with time, if you bring in a time horizon or likelihood, then you might see, hey, but if I took nine days, then I could catch up to maybe 85, 90% of the deliveries. So then you know what's my likelihood of success depending on where I decide to plan. Five days, I have a different likelihood of success as opposed to nine days. And now I take that little piece and I look at the impact it has across my end-to-end -end process. And that is a KPI telling me for my objective that my customer's delivery and my customer's NPS is getting better and better, right? So I think it's super important To, different, to basically take the data, look at it in the process context, and within the process context, put in what are the KPIs I want to measure, and also what are certain things that normally happen, right? We call them anomalies, and anomalies can be good, anomalies can be bad, right? So a good anomaly is, for example, 
example, um, you see this in stock trading, a stock price starts to go up and then all of a sudden, you know, others start to buy because they see it, they want to ride the wave or customer demand goes up and you see that it's a trend of customer demand going up. So you, because like maybe a marketing campaign happened, maybe a celebrity has put on, you know, an Instagram post, whatever it is, you want to ride the wave and fulfill those orders. It can also be a negative thing, right? Something bad happened and now we have to act. In all cases, you want anomalies to be signaled to you. And in fact, this is all gold sitting in our own, in the systems already today. I don't need a customer to tell me that something's gone wrong, Right. I can find most things already if I just look at my data in a different point of view. When, when you talk about anomalies as a signal, um, we come into a very interesting um, discussion when we, for example, talk about central capabilities needed to be successful in the 21st century. On an um, operative level, we often talked as insight to action one, to be one of these needed capabilities like inside you know where you are you have a very clear picture of your of your options and to action means that you're not left alone with implementing the solution like to solve that problem but the system and your system landscape then leads you via technology scenarios simulations intelligence and so on directly to the action and um, you do not have to do this manually when we talk about that effect on a strategic level Like we have what you said, like triggers. I, I probably have something like a signal, which gives me the signal that maybe I have to do things a little bit different in the future. Um, everybody at the moment is, of course, talking about XM, Qualtrics, and so on, giving me these kinds of signal or one, uh, one possible source of signals. But when we then come into the interaction part, Is this something where you say this is where you and Salonis are at home because you can be that into action part on a strategic level? What experience data is giving us and you are the implementer of the solution on a process excellence and strategic level? Right. I think of us as being right between those. So mm -hmm. I would say, first of all, the customer has to know their objective, right? We talked about that. And then you need to put the objective into the right context. So to get the right business context, you need basically a few things. Um, you really need to focus on the um, process view, right? So put your data into the process. Then you're enriching it. Like experience data, for example, is very much enriching this data. It's going beyond just telling me what happened where and who did it and when did they do it. By the way, with Salonis, we can do it both out of the business systems, but also off of the desktop because people love to spend their times in Excels and Google Sheets and SharePoints. So you're taking both the information of the business systems that the customer has and the desktop to see what is the flow of the process. And then you're taking another data point, which is the experience data. You're saying something here is not going right, but then it's not enough to just know, hey, this is not happy. You want to know exactly what happened, where did it happen, how did it happen, who did it, and how are we going to fix it, right? So therefore, or the opposite way, right? They could have been super happy. You also want to know how can we do it again? And so therefore, it's super important to take that data, put it in the process view, enrich it with experience data. There is also other data that you can enrich it with, right? Based on, for example, Uh, like we talked before with the bottlenecks of the supply chain, you can be looking at data. That's what we offered in our COVID apps, 
we quickly released our customers special applications for COVID-19 to help them with material traceability and cash preservation. And in that, we were using signals based on where's the virus spreading to be able to say, where are your potential upcoming bottlenecks? Right. So you can do that. And so you enrich the data. And then you're right. The question is, how do you take the action? But you have to kind of come to terms with what we talked about earlier. There's not always the norm. There's not only one action. You have to be able to be willing to accept that in different situations, my action will be different. So you still need the signal to be associated and learning. And based on what the signal is telling you, it's not a zero one thing, right? It's basically you're creating then the flow of the action and you, you automate, you basically, you sense, you categorize, and then you act. Then you do this as much as possible in your underlying systems in the SAP systems or any form of system that you have already, because we want our customers to take the maximum benefit of the investments that they have already made. Or you can even go one step further and say, okay, in case this happens, give options to the employee, right? Should we do this or should we do that? Because there's a certain accuracy, there's certain optionality, right? And then in other cases, you have, we have to also respect the fact that first you should analyze, right? In very deeply and then test something and then do it, right? So you also have those situations. And we do that very frequently. So for example, when, when companies put in a whole new digital system, they don't go out and put it everywhere, right? They'll start with one factory, one pilot, you know, test, probe, sense what happened, and then act. And so you want to be able to respect that and not break the overall system. And then other times you have chaos, like currently with this corona lovely virus, where you just act first. Close down the schools. Let's hope that stops the virus spreading. Yeah. And then you measure and then you find out, okay, that worked. Let's do more of that. More schools close, right? And so I think that act part has always been the Italy's heel because it was always considered this is one way to act. That's how most bots work. They just do one thing really well. But actually that ability to maneuver right? And decide based on the business context, which is the right action and then take that action or support the human uh, to take the action, right? And I think that we will have a situation where some tasks will be done completely by the machines. Some tasks will be done in a cobot type of way. And then other tasks will be human led. And then the human will do the work, but humans are really good at options not so good at, you know, figuring out risk. <laughs> and so that's where, again, the machines can yeah. come in and do that risk-based calculation on the end-to-end -end picture of, a, of an organization. When we have talked about Celonis before the crisis, there was always one word being strongly attached to it, which was sustainability. Sustainability is something which, which, of course, um, at least when you look into the general media in the last month was probably not on top of the, let's say, news lists. Um, is this something, what you say, this will become important again in a new normal? Is there Will there be a place for it in 
which kind will be a place for it and can be now the right moment when we anyway have to reorganize processes when we have to reset up the things we do to use for example process mining to add this sustainable touch to our processes to come better out of this crisis and recover better right. I, i really hope um, that we use this crisis moment and also the fact that we have brought down a lot of systems to a more, let's say, of a minimal uh, to really be able to differentiate between what is super necessary versus I could have inconvenienced myself a little bit to leave a better world for you know, our children and other people's um, and, and the next generations to come. Um, I think of Salone as helping in sustainability in a couple of ways. The first way is I think you definitely have the ability to look at your financial health and sustainability of your company in a more holistic way. You have your end-to-end -end processes. You're able to calculate the flow of the process, the impact it has on your financials. You're always against your objectives, both financials, um, financially, and so you're able to... Um, behave that way and make sure you have a good environment for your employees. But at the same time, you have environmental sustainability. So we do see companies saying, okay, I don't want to just associate the financial impact on my process, but I want to associate my sustainability footprint in order to be able to better generate a uh, integrated report for my organization and its overall sustainability footprint. And uh, that's something that we're very passionate about. How do we leave a better planet for next generations to come? And also how to eliminate waste in all of its forms within processes, because as we've discussed earlier, you have the difference between efficiency and complete effectiveness of the process. And many times we see that you know materials are being used that they otherwise would not have been needed to use, or there's too much um, disposal, right? given certain process steps. And so with Salonis and the analysis of the overall process, you're able to very quickly zone in on these. I love the fact, for example, one of my first customer experiences here, we went into a shop floor and uh, simply based on the data in the manufacturing execution system, we were able to see how the whole factory was running. And the customer said, but I didn't give you a layout of my factory. We said, yeah, but your process is going through the stack. And we could even see the shifts. And he said, but I didn't give you the shifts. I said, yeah, but you can see people changing. So it's all in your data. Data tell us beautiful stories. And then what we were able to see is which stations caused which rework, which stage, which materials caused the highest form of failure during the production. Then you go, you analyze the customer service process and you see which materials broke down in the customer service. Then you come back to production You know, and quite often it's also the ones that broke in production in this case. In other cases, they weren't. And then you're able to zero in there. And so with that, you're eliminating a lot of repeat. You're eliminating a lot of um, breakage of material, disposal of material. And you're really focusing down on the essentials. Great. As a last topic, let's talk about how Zelonis is supporting the move of SAP customers to S4HANA. Because generally said, there are like two philosophies to do this move. Either you go the way we are a technical conversion in which you take like existing processes and put it on the new technological level. And the other way is more of the classic greenfield approach. We are starting with a clean sheet of paper. I am simplifying, of course, not. 
as an example, I want to pick up a potential weakness of the conversion approach, which is, which is that in some cases you may come out of this with basically old wine in new bottles. How can Silonis help not to step into this trap? So first of all, we work really close with SAP. And so making sure that SAP customers and SAP are successful are very, is very close to our heart. And I think, Alex, you know, we're very proud of having won the Pinnacle Award. And um, I think we are globally considered to be uh, the, your, one of your best, if not the best, right, solution extension partner. So we're very proud of this and we'll continue to work super hard um, on making sure that the SAP, SAP's customers and SAP are successful. And I think the best way to think of it, and in my life, I've lived through quite a few of these transformations. I've been in this industry since 2001, which is a long time. And I've seen all the different evolutions. So I think the first thing is at the very beginning, right, to how do you identify what are my processes that I want to configure? Many customers go out and create global templates. How do you create these global templates? Many customers go out and they create design thinking workshops. And then in the design thinking workshops, um, you know, you bring in a group of experts. The loudest person in the room generally wins the argument because everybody else just wants to take a coffee break and got tired, right? And in those workshops where you're doing the analysis of the as is, you also end up in a, in a kind of uh, group thing focused on what felt to be the highest pain point, but in fact was probably not. I'll give you an example. One customer I talked to in North America, they said they had a systematic problem with on-time delivery. And the customer service group was blaming the warehouse and the warehouse was saying, but the customer service group didn't send me the orders on time. What happened was they then said, you know what? They had these workshops and then someone had heard of Salonis and process mining said, let's just process mine this. Once you do that, you get your facts, your data, and your numbers. It's indisputable where the issue was. In this particular example, it was neither. Somebody in risk management had decided to adjust the risk labeling of the customers, never updated the underlying system when they did that, and simply blocked everything, right? And everything was being manually overwritten. So then they could fix that, and then they could move on. So that's just an example of how facts and data can quickly accelerate the beginning, finding what is really working. There's also a lot of gems, right? Remember, if you completely change everything, you're asking people to change every work habit that they have. That's not a reasonable thing. Some work habits are good or some parts of your organizations have figured things out that nobody else has. So how do you get a complete overview? The third thing, and, and, and capture these gems, the third thing is when people are working on, the on these uh, global templates, there are a lot of valid exceptions based on countries, based on regional liking, customer requests. There are valid exceptions. Those valid exceptions tend to fall away in the first phase, causing then a later phase, the testing phase, to be much more exhaustive and costly, right? So with Salonis, you get a complete overview of your processes as they are. You look at, you can measure their effectiveness. You can pick your gems. You can eliminate your, you know, madness. And then basically come to a common agreement as to what your to be is. And you have a much more exhaustive list because when something is odd and you felt like I need to eliminate that and then you found out, no, 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 but that's a legal requirement. And so, you know, then you kept it. So you're much more exhaustive. 
Then you get into the second piece and you're able to measure this is, this is what my life is today. Then you get into the second piece, you start implement, implementing. And with, with SAP, we worked really closely to make sure also that customers have a faster way to do this by connecting directly to the model company, right? And being able to compare it to the as is to the, prefer, to the model companies recommended by SAP. Then you start implementing. You can definitely, as I've said, shorten the cycle uh, for testing. And then you now go into your go live. Once you're in your go live, one of the biggest critical impacts of the or failure points of digital transformation pros, uh, programs, and this is not just for SAP, is um, change management. Now, you need to be able to know exactly, okay, I now have my new process. Now we're rolling it out. Which are the teams that are most impacted? Who will have to change their habits? And then you want to create a targeted approach for change management for those groups, as opposed to others who might have had minimal change. And after your go live, after your successful change, your reduced testing time, and also your reduced as is time, you then want to keep a Salonis system in place. And that's what we see a lot of customers, such as Avnet, for example, or Schlumberger saying, they use it on a permanent basis to always update the systems. Because one of the things that we see is there's always a productivity gain when a system is new, but over time, because the project now is gone, it starts to go down. But now, because you're continuously monitoring the behavior of the people and the system, right, in this end-to-end -end process, then you're able to identify and do these small adjustments to keep your system alive and fresh and healthy. And also make sure, especially after the first six months when people love to fall back into their old Excel sheets and old habits, that you get quick indicators as to this is happening. So you can then intervene and ensure the continuous success of the implementation and extend its overall successful life. It's very interesting what you say, because let me add um, a bit of a story that I experienced to that topic. When you talk about these things, like what shall we take with us and what shall we leave behind? And especially the, the discussion, um, if you do something like a brownfield or greenfield itself, in so many times, it, it's not fact-based. Yeah, it's it's purely emotional. Yeah? yeah, when you ask like, why did you do that, and why do you want to take this over? Why do you want to do and continue to work like this? You hear some so often things like um, industry specifics. Ah, that's something you cannot argue with industry specifics, especially not when you're like an like an outsider. But when using process mining, yeah, so often it came to the table that that was not the reason why. Uh, this process has been established years ago like that, but it was the only way the legacy system and the limitations of the legacy system allowed you to work. So thanks to process mining, the facts came to the table and um, you were talking about something completely different. Like, do you want to take the limitations of the old world into the new world? And yeah. you have so many better arguments than to do things right. And that's, let's say, something like a... A lot of beautiful um, experiences you can connect with that. And so many times you also find that people over time, right, had rather build for a custom extension than actually gone back into the system and reconfigured it. So since Salonis doesn't just sit on top of SAP, but across also the custom applications, we have customers who, would, who capture mainframes. We have, you know, customers who are in all sorts of different solutions. Then you're able 
to effectively see what is happening outside of my system, right? What features have been put by customers and are now burdening us because it's in custom, it's burdening the customer with additional TCO, right? To maintain all of this, that actually um, they could actually move into as part of the implementation. We're working with uh, SAP on a, a couple of customers, and then you see right away when we do a proof of value to those customers how much is being done outside of the system that could have been done in the system, and hopefully they will take the opportunity as they move uh, into their you know, digital transformation, uh, be it S4, one of SAP's cloud solutions, that they um, basically uh, do, do exactly that, and then get even more TCO than had previously been expected. So it's, I think, all about like good partnership. It's all about how do we help the customer be successful together by bringing two different capabilities into the system. One is the data process analysis that comes from us, right? Combined with the ability to then help the customer be more resilient and agile by looking completely end to end across the whole landscape of the customer. And then with SAP's, you know, flawless ability to um, operate and run a company's business, it's just a great combination partnership. Perfect. Hala, thanks a lot for this session. It was very wonderful. I really learned a lot. And as a last question, where can our listeners follow you? So I'm always on LinkedIn. So you can follow me there. Um, I don't particularly go on Twitter too much, but LinkedIn. LinkedIn, the best solution. Yeah. Perfect. Hala. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank Bye -bye. you. You too.